talking all along. some seats in here if you uh, those of you sitting on the, the ground if you want to Good evening. Welcome to the annual Penn AAP National Book Week Symposium in support of America's annual celebration of writers, books, and reading. I'm Nick Veliotis, the president of the Association of American Publishers, and I'm delighted to be at this festival of literature this evening. This week throughout the country, book people like you will share thoughts, ideas, and words about books the National Books Foundation, the Center for the Book and the Library of Congress, and the American Booksellers Association, along with a host of funding sources, make these diverse events possible on a national level. And we salute them, as we do all those individuals and institutions contributing to the creation and dissemination of books in America. And I would like to pay a special tribute to Neil Baldwin, whose dedication and talent have contributed so very much to the success of the National Books Foundation, the National Books Awards, and the National Book Week. Neil, stand up. From my perspective, we can't take enough opportunities to say thank you. Tonight, we celebrate some of these contributors, fine men and women, who represent significant links on the writer-to-reader chain. And of course, in particular, the authors, especially the authors, with whom it all begins. I should note also that you were invited to take home with you your personal copy of the 1993 National Book Week poster, designed by Lorraine Louie, we got ours early, and they're already up in our offices. They're terrific. They're outside when you leave. Uh, you know, I live in Washington, and this week any gathering of three or more people on a corner results in a microphone and a camera, and before you know it, you've got another inaugural event. Uh, well, our numbers certainly qualify us. Uh, and so... I think I'm going to designate this affair the Penn AAP National Book Week Clinton Inaugural Symposium. Uh, based on my experience around book people, there must be two or three Republicans here, and I want to offer my apologies and condolences. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our host for this evening. Robert Lipsight is the author of 14 books. 
including Dick Gregory's autobiography, Nigger, Sports World and American Dreamland, and Free to Be Muhammad Ali for adults in such titles as The Chemo Kid, The Contender, and One Fat Summer for Young People. He won an Emmy in 1990 for on-camera achievement for hosting the 11th hour on public television, and in 1992 was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Robert Lipsight, when he's not writing very important and successful books, writes sports commentary for the New York Times. I present Robert Lipsight. Thank you very much. I'm very proud to be here and to introduce 11 leading lights of the literary industrial complex, <laughs> all of whom who have already taken a book to lunch. You know, that's the theme of, yeah. Um, I wasn't hungry. I took sex by Madonna. <laughs> but before I turn this over to our 11 bookies, as we call them, in lieu of my usual enormous fee, I've been granted two minutes, they'll have five minutes, to talk about the book that brought me here, my, my book as Magic Carpet, which I think almost all of us in this room probably have. Um, I went to an urban junior high school. I was in a special class for the talented and fat. <laughs> and we carried our many books in leather briefcases that were known to people who are not in that class, as fag bags. <laughs> the big sport in the school was to kick the fag bag out of your hand. By that time, I knew I wanted to be a writer. How else do you sit in a corner and plot the death of people who <laughs> kick your fag bag? <laughs> but I think that all of us bookish kids were always afraid of that word. It had far less of a homosexual connotation at the time, than, than the idea that you were weak, that you were an outsider, that you had no real future in the world. And then I found my book. It was by Richard Halliburton. It was called The Royal Road to Romance. He was a travel writer. And he would go somewhere that I had never heard of. The rainforest, jungle then. He went to the jungle, and he would strap on his back the, the equivalent of a laptop, I don't know, Bloom, Olivetti, Manuel, and put a knife in his teeth. He would jump into the croc-infested waters. He would swim across stock to take out the knife, carve his girlfriend a handbag, <laughs> swim to the other side, unstrap whatever was on his back, and write a story about it. Well, he made it possible to be a writer for a fat, bookish kid in the 50s. Uh, later, I found out that he made it all up, which was even better, <laughs> because that's what we really wanted to do. The people that we are going to hear from tonight writers, editors, publishers, publicist agents, have all traveled their, all, their, their own royal road and each paved with their own books. I think we want to start meeting them right away. Our first, Donald Lamb, is a renowned publisher. I don't believe anybody ever kicked anything out of 
this man's hands, especially since he prepped for this job with the Army Counterintelligence Corps uh, after he got out of Yale. He is the publisher uh, at W.W. Norton. He began with the company in 1956 uh, as a college book representative. He's been an editor. Uh, he's been publisher since 1984. These days, he's back out on the road visiting stores, selling books, and we hope taking bookies to lunch. Donald Lamb. Thanks very much. William Butler Yeats had his Be Loud Glade. I grew up in a book-lined house. It was not a big place, so every cubit of space that was not reserved for less important things was given over to bookshelves. One could follow the course of Western civilization by circumnavigating the room, and the living room, from north to east to south to west, from the Greeks to the Middle Ages to the Renaissance to the 19th century novel, and then out into the hallway for the moderns, prominent among them Sinclair Lewis, Sherwood Anderson, Thornton Wilder, Somerset Maugham. Hemingway was there, but no Faulkner, no Fitzgerald, and just about everything that Thomas Wolfe wrote. Inevitably, unavoidably, avoidably, I became a reader. But sports were too important in my life. I never did earn classification as a bookworm. Still, there was one day a year when the urge to read could not be suppressed, Christmas. The best gift of all predictably came from my Uncle Alec, who was in truth no uncle at all. He was instead a college classmate of my father's, a professor of English at Yale named Alexander McLaren Witherspoon. Years later, I would discover that he was the patron saint of almost all undergraduates in New Haven, aspiring to a scholar's life. To me, he was a source of books that I started reading just as soon as the Christmas dinner ended and kept on reading often until dawn. The Howard Pyle edition of the adventures of Robin Hood and of King Arthur. Gulliver's travels, somewhat watered down for for a child's consumption. Mutiny on the Bounty, with drawings by N.C. Wyeth. These volumes, those hours, come back again and again. As for the scholarly life, something intervened the summer of 1951. The year 1951 was not a year like any other in book publishing. It saw the publication of two bestsellers that would work their way deep into the culture. One was Rachel Carson's The Sea Around Us. The other, J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. I had double dated with Salinger on an excursion to Sarah Lawrence College in his pre-catcher days. All I remember is that he spent most of the evening sipping whatever it was we were drinking and staring into the fire in the tip-top tap in Bronxville. But his name registered when I went to work that summer at a Doubleday bookstore, long defunct, in the airlines terminal, or what used to be the airlines terminal. Uh, it subsequently became uh, a, an automat takeout place and is now, I think, a uh, 
perhaps the last remaining pipe store in New York. But anyhow, it was across, uh, directly on, across from Grand Central on 42nd Street. Sad to report, neither the catcher in the rye nor the sea around us mattered much to me that summer. Neither did his eyes on the sparrow, Ethel Waters' autobiography, nor my six prisoners by the then warden of Alcatraz, nor Nicholas Montserrat's The, Coo the Cruel Sea. To be sure, those books sold quite well, but they suffered from a cardinal defect. None of them were published by Doubleday. It was the genial practice of the Doubleday bookstores in those days to augment a sales clerk's munificent salary, $26 a week, as I recall, with a 2% commission on each Doubleday title that he or she sold. With books, hardcover, mind you, priced typically from $2.95 to $4.95, it took a heap of Doubleday books sold to pay for even a very slim egg salad sandwich at the automat. In fact, they didn't even put mayonnaise on it. It was just sliced egg, as I remember. That was five cents cheaper. One day, an order came down from on high from a Mr. Banker, who, as I recall, was second in command of the Doubleday bookstores. The warehouse was overstocked with a very good novel that was clinging to the lower rungs of the bestseller list. To give that title a boost, Doubleday clerks would receive 25 cents in addition to the usual commission on Doubleday books, or a total of 33 cents. Now, 33 cents was a lot of money. Every copy of that book I sold would almost pay for a beef pot pie at the automat. <laughs> I had to scrape up another two cents somewhere. And so it was that nobody, but nobody, who walked into that bookstore emerged, if I could help it, without a copy of the Cain Mutiny. <laughs> Your grandmother is sick unto death in the hospital. What a shame. Here's the perfect book for her. <laughs> or what about that nervous young couple who, who were about to fly off uh, for a honeymoon in Bermuda and had clearly had an unfulfilled wedding night? <laughs> yes, we do have ideal marriage here under the counter. Uh, uh, but I also recommend that you take along the Cane Mutiny. <laughs> and so it happened by summer's end that the Cane Mutiny became the number one bestseller. <laughs> As for me, what better a career than one in a lofty occupation where all it took was a simple quarter to make a book fly. It's turned out to be a little more difficult than that, but no less fun. Of course, I do have the occasional pang of conscience about the copies of The Catcher in the Rye and The Sea Around Us that went unsold. The authors, I pray, may forgive me. Thank you. A hungry publisher makes bestsellers. Well, next we'll hear from a writer, Paula Fox, is one of the most honored novelists for younger readers. She's written 18 novels for them, including A Place Apart, The Stone-Faced Boy, How Many Miles to Babylon. She won a Newbery Medal for The Slave Dance and a Newbery Honor Prize for One-Eyed Cat. 
For the body of her children's literature, she received a Hans Christian Andersen Medal. She's also written six adult novels, most recently, God of Nightmares. I particularly resent the body of Paula Fox's work. When I began writing young adult novels, editors answered the question, how do you do this, by handing me a Paula Fox novel. That's how good she is. And now I hand you Paula Fox. Thank you. Several years ago, my dearest friend, a high school teacher, telephoned me in a state of alarm. She had learned she had to teach William Faulkner's novel, Light in August, to her 11th grade class. She had read only one of his short stories. She had un been unable to read his other work. I had read a good deal of Faulkner when I was young, and I dreaded the thought of struggling with one of his books again. For although I admired him, I didn't like him. Well, she said, you must, you have to, so that we can talk about the book. It might help her think of ways to teach it, she said. I told her I'd try. So I began Light in August. Three days later, during a 10-minute break in a class I was teaching at New York University, I telephoned her. It was late in the evening. I was quite breathless. At first, she feared something dire had happened, but what she heard in my voice was astonishment. There was nothing I wanted to do except to read and talk with her about that novel. She had begun it by then. We spoke about it for weeks. Sometimes she reported to me what her students had said. Most of them were startled, nettled, captivated by the story of Joe Christmas. She had worried at first that the black students in her class might be offended by the novel's language. They were not. They realized it was a story of that time, that place. All the students came to understand during the semester that Light in August, among other things, is one of the truest accounts in American literature about the depredations and torments that are a consequence of racism. That year, I gave my younger son a copy of the novel, another to a neighbor friend, and I pressed it on still other friends who either hadn't read Faulkner for years or never had. This recent Christmas, I gave it to my elder son. At the end of the NYU semester, someone gave a party for the department. The first person I ran into was a young black writer to whom I had been only introduced. We ended up sitting together for a while. Without preamble, with the novel still flaring in my mind, I told him I had finished reading Light in August that afternoon. Had he read it? If he had, what did he think of it? He replied with one word, luminous. That year, I read all of Faulkner's work that I could find, even The Sound and the Fury, which years earlier had defeated me so utterly I had put it aside after 30 or so pages. A few weeks ago, I received a request to write a 300-word entry in what is to be a reader's guide for young people. 
I looked over the many pages of lists of people or subjects from which I might choose. I saw that for writing about Madonna, one would get an honorarium of $250, uh, for Faulkner, 75. <laughs> 300 words is a page and a couple of sentences. For a few days, I hesitated how to write about such a writer in such a small space. I had just finished a novel for young people. I was about to start one for grown-ups. Then, caught up in a wave of powerful emotion, love perhaps, and gratitude to Faulkner, I began a few tentative sentences. I have told you this small account of one reader's experience because I believe it illustrates a way in which the work of a writer survives the tyranny of the new, the tides of fashion, the erosion of time itself. A great novel is a living thing it is kept alive by other living things. To quote the lovely words of the poet, Charles Simic, meaning is always in search of itself. Unsuspected revelations await us around the corner. Thank you. As you probably know, you can't tell a book by its cover, which is why our next guest, Chip Kidd, makes as much money as he does. He has designed more than 200 books for Alfred A. Knopf's in the last six years since graduating from Penn State, where, and you make of this as you wish, he beat the drum in the marching band. Th this guy is still beating the drum. These are the testimonials that he has given us uh, of his work. An apparent cry for help, People Magazine. Typical. Communication Arts Magazine. Glorious. Soldier of Fortune Magazine. <laughs> Puzzling. Print Magazine. The result of a cancerous society by the Watchtower. And the Christian Science Monitor said, clearly the work of a mind in distress. <laughs> Among this mind in distress, recent work, Donna Tartt's The Secret History, Anne Rice's The Tale of the Body Thief, and Christina Garcia's Dreaming in Cuban. And we'll be meeting Christina soon, but first, Chip Kidd. <clears throat> we tend to celebrate National Book Week in the normal way by somehow taking notice of books in general and then reading as many of them as possible in the allotted time. This evening, however, I would like to pay attention to National Book Week by giving notice to those books that will never be read by anyone ever. <laughs> because of one simple reason, they were never published. All of the following are absolutely genuine book proposals that I have collected over my years at Alfred A. Knopf. Only certain names will have been changed in order to avoid any unnecessary litigation. <laughs> Think of these as unseen tomes in Amelia Earhart's personal library. 
March 14, 1991. Dear Mr. Kidd, the full title of the novel I'm writing to you about is Confessions of a Necrophile, a picaresque novel on the pursuit of pleasure. It is a comedy and a work of the highest literary quality. It tells the story of a man whose secret ambition in life is to make love to the unknown soldier, <laughs> which he does. He also has flings with the mortal remains of Washington, Lenin, a dinosaur skeleton, a mummy, a side of beef, and a pound of rotten hamburger. The narrator relates how he developed his peculiar taste as something of, quote, a success story. What results is a book like no other, a Notes from the Underground as rewritten by Henry Miller. The book is a shocker, but always in an insidiously funny way. One of the basic premises of the novel is that all compulsive behavior is basically absurd. The unorthodox subject matter shouldn't necessarily confine the book to a small literary audience, however. The phenomenal success of Lolita occurred during times as staid as these. I can send you a copy of the proofs, 214 pages, if you'd be interested in doing the jacket. I enclose an envelope for your reply. Cordially, Leonard J. Stinky Binky, Chicago, Illinois. October 28, 1988. To the editors at Alfred A. Knopf, Inc. In reference to How to Stay Young and Beautiful, a new book by Magma Pool. La, uh, last Superstar of Burlesque, with Fifi Le Fay. Dear editors, Magma Pool is still autographing copies of her first book, an autobiography called The Lady is a Vamp. But she did not include the success of how she has stayed looking so terrific after 36 years in the exotic entertainment business. So her fans and friends have been clamoring for a beauty book from her, one that tells all solely on the way she looks today. A striptease queen who has never lost her luster, the fabulous red-headed magma reveals everything from exercise and sexercise to makeup tips, how to eat right, and the proper mental attitude in how to stay young and beautiful. She is a great role model. All that hair is her own. It's colored, of course. She's vivacious and full of life. Growing old like magma pool must be the epitome, and every woman wants to know how. If you're interested, let us know. We have submitted the attached outline and press information to four other publishers. Thank you. Signed, Fifi Le Fay. July 24, 1989, to the editors at Knopf. Re Abattoir, a novel. Abattoir is the story of my world. <laughs> my world is not kind or, nor gracious. It is hot and dirty and terribly, unbearably cold. A world where nights and days and summers and winters become one and sleep is a stranger you used to make love to in another world, another time. <laughs> It is a dynamic, wonderful, ever-changing, pulsating with life world. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Sincerely signed, Betty Page. <laughs> November 18, 1988, to the editor-in-chief of Vintage Books, 201 East 50th Street. Please have a look at the enclosed listing of my published bestsellers. I am an American bilingual author and not a foreign author. Have English originals of my books finished. My satirical sex novels are very much of the Jonathan Winters type of humor. <laughs> not black humor, to hell with it. Here are my books. Number one, my bed is not for sleeping. 
The Hilarious Adventures of Marika, New York's happiest Hungarian-born divorcee, and her friends, the goats. Number two, I married a hundred husbands. Kiki Wacker, Nye Klotz Fakiti, has actually married a hundred men without ever divorcing any of them. All of this happens in New York City and other U.S. states. Number three, Attila, king of the gigolos. Attila, a gorgeous 18-year-old Hungarian import, seduces 99% of all New York women, but marries his fat cook. Number four, Beds of Manhattan. Meet Jerome Neverreed, the king of the American publishing scene who has never, ever read one single book. Meet Dee 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 Small behind, the most seductive New York scandal book author. And meet Mayor Fifi, a happily married man with five kids who must pretend he is gay and wear lace skirts at City Hall because being gay is in. <laughs> and number five, I slept with the president. America has just elected its youngest and sexiest president ever, Sexy Lexi, who gets involved in the Hotel Whiskeygate scandal, etc., etc. I have also published five psychological thrillers, and they sold very well. Sincerely, Miss Ann Thrope, New York, New York. <laughs> to Mr. Ashbell Green, senior editor, Alfred A. Knopf, New York, New York, April 10th, 1992. Mr. Green, your, your rejection of my manuscript is noted. <laughs> I have discussed this with God. And we are mutually sorry that you have no prospects for the publication of the truth necessary for the release of the Genesis nations from bondage in the last days of the atonement to establish world security for the age of Aquarius. <laughs> we both regret that your rejection of my manuscript is recorded in the Book of Life guarded by St. Peter at the gates of the kingdom of God. Your future assignment will be made according to your support indicated by your limited enthusiasm to accept a 1990s messenger of gods. We wish you good luck with the evil empire of the wicked one where your next assignment will be for benign neglect of human responsibilities for the expansion of God's kingdom on planet Earth to avoid world famine conditions in the next century. May your city survive the division created by religious division and the buildup of stress between the races. Sincerely, Prophet King Kenna'i Faris, the born-again psychic forerunner prophet of visions of the Judaic prophets, prophets of the seven mountains of the Show Me State of Missouri world security. <laughs> P.S. Frankly, God is disappointed in your level of social consciousness. <laughs> to Anne Close, editor, Random House. Ms. Close, do you ever cheer for the underdog? Do you believe it is better to get even than to get mad? Then you should take the time to read my book. For better, for worse, for murder, is about three average everyday wives who have found that it is easier and better to let their husbands have fatal accidents than it is to live with them any longer. <laughs> After their husbands have had woman-made accidents, they found that many other wives have the same needs and wishes. They help a few more wives arrange accidents for their husbands. Every wife, mistress, or girlfriend who has ever been neglected, abused, or in any way mistreated needs this book. Every husband and boyfriend should read it so that they will know better than to push their women to this extreme. <laughs> for Better, For Worse, For Murder is the first of a series of books chronicling the quiet life of these three women as they help other women put their problems to rest. My second book, To Love, Honor, and Murder, is three quarters completed at this time. 
thank you for your time in reading this query. I am looking forward to your reply. Sincerely, Ms. Helen Sweet Story, Sacramento, California. To the editor at Alfred A. Knopf. Dear sir or madam, the solicitude with which you encourage writers to send to your establishment their submissions is welcome to at least one unpublished and unproduced author. But I have had so much rejection, professionally and personally, in my life and line of work that I no longer believe in a literary Santa Claus, as it were. I have found that in, in literature as in life, what now matters most is not what one knows, but whom. that talent is less important than connections, and I believe the American literary scene exemplifies this in its current status. Hence, I rarely submit any of my material for publication while continuing to write, but in the hope that a social change will sweep away so much of the prevailing orthodoxy of the unorthodox, which now suppresses and, in effect, censors, censors its own nonconformance. Thus, while I have completed various full-length plays and also could excerpt for your publication a small part of a long novel still in progress of completion, on reconsideration I thought it wiser just to send you my yearly poem <laughs> and a sample of my usually unrequited correspondence. You are welcome to publish my submissions under their respective names or request me to send something more. But at least in this instance, I tire of throwing further my pearls before swine. <laughs> Sincerely, Robert Frost. <laughs> That's Frost, F-R-O-S-T-T-E. And now the poem by Robert Frost. That's Frost, F-R-O-S-T-T-E. A Boat to Nausea. The ship rolled up, the ship rolled up. Stomachs bounced and rose and rolled. A watery sojourn on this tiny ship, each one in turn on our terrible trip. Threw up, threw up, threw up, threw up. <laughs> As doom descended and stomachs crescendoed. The question that came to my mind in its crisis. Oh, why did we eat greasy chicken with spices? A horrible, terrible, miserable fate. Cursed for the worst, the box lunch that we ate. Yet we arrived and somewhat alived, tourists were willing to sit anywhere until, as we feared, time came to return to the bow and the stern of you horrible, terrible, miserable boat, you demon afloat, you torment on water. And as we returned, else, as we had learned, the ship rolled up, the ship rolled up, stomachs bounced and rose and rolled. I swear, I swear, I swear I'll grow old before I step on another boat. Why ruin my cruise? You ruined my day, my thoughts, my peace, my happy repose, as well as my lunch, as well as my clothes. As you and your lurch rolled up, rolled up, and stomachs bounced and rose and rolled. By Roberto Frost, F-R-O-S-T-T-E. Here's, here's to 1989, to the wise, the beer is brine. And lastly, June 4th, 1991. Dear Mr. Kidd, it has been three months since I last wrote to you about my novel, Confessions of a Necrophile. <laughs> and I have received no answer. If you did not receive my letter, I will be happy to send you another copy. Cordially, Leonard J. Stinky Binky, Wheeling, Illinois. P.S. I always thought that it would be a great jacket if you had the top half of a skull with a big kiss mark on the forehead.
Thank you. You laugh, but Donald Lamb could sell those books. <laughs> but Faith Sale would not buy them. Uh, our, our next speaker is, is one of the best known and honored people of our literary industrial complex. Vice President and Senior Executive Editor of G.P. Putnam Sons, Faith Sale has worked with dozens of best-selling authors, including Amy Tan, Kurt Vonnegut, Alice Hoffman, Lee Smith, Joe Heller, Nancy Kincaid, and Connie Fowler. Before coming to Putnam's, Faith was a senior editor at Dutton. A member of the Penn American Center Executive Board, she is co-chair of its Freedom to Write Committee. Faith Sale. Chip, you didn't tell us what jackets you would have put on those books. That's what we want to hear. Um, when, when this event was presented to me initially, it, I was told that we were going to talk about why I do what I do. And um, I have two answers to that. One is because it's the only thing I know how to do. And that's my glib answer. Or I could cook or I could knit. But the real reason is that I'm one of those uh, hopeless sentimentalists who believes that good writing is as high a calling as there is. And it's something I know I could never accomplish or even dare aspire to. I'm happy to be in service to it. And this is, this is why I do what I do and work with the writers that I work with. But then somebody said to me, no, that's not what this evening is about. It's um, talk about the book to talk about the book that changed my life. So I thought, well, who do I say? Who do I say? What do I say? And I suddenly realized that, in fact, every book I work on is the book that changes my life. With each book that I edit and escort into publication, I find that I learn something. I learn what, what anybody learns from, from reading a book or presumably writing a book, but I also learn lessons that I can apply to help bring other books into being. And the corollary of that, of course, is that I regret everything I didn't know for the books that I had published before. And I go back 10 years, five years, last year, the last book I published, there's something else I might have learned from what work I have done on the current book, um, from the author, from what it's like to work with somebody, from um, how one gets books reviewed, how one deals with publicists, how one deals with artists, um, and every, every part of what it takes to put a book together. So that wasn't really anything I could talk about. Now I discover it's about my life in books, or books in my life, and that my life is books. Um, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about how I feel about being an editor or what, what being an editor means to me. And anyone, I know I've seen a couple of editors here, so and they will agree with me that editing is really a very small part of what your job is. Editing is uh, what, what you're supposed to be doing, but you are going to meetings, you're filling out forms, you're dealing with all the different departments, that uh, the sales department, the publicity department, the art department, promotions, and, and um, other editors, and other editors' projects, and so on. 
But always my happiest moments had been when I would actually be editing, which is 100% of the time something I do at home, at night or on weekends. I can't seem to stay up very late anymore at night, so it's mostly early in the mornings or on weekends. And I would sit with pencil, you can see, I never am without a pencil in my hand, and say, this is why I do what I do. I just love this, working on the page, finding whatever it is that I can do to help make this book better than it is. That's, that's what I love and that's why I do what I do. But actually, recently, I would say in the last year or so, I've had a, a sort of epiphany and I've discovered that, yes, I do enjoy doing that, but, but the real thrill, the real gratification of the work I do is witnessing the process and even fancying myself at times being a part of it or helping to encourage it. And it's, it's this that I would wish for everybody. It is, it is reading something by a real writer and saying, are you, are you sure you want that to be exactly like that? Is that how you want your, your character to be talking? Or is, is that the scene that really is going to exemplify what you're trying to do? And then, sooner, sometime soon, sometimes late, the one case I want to give you actually was a quick one. Um, the writer will come back with something that just sort of blossoms. And you think, how could that not have been what you wrote originally? How could that not be there? And, and, and how, how wonderful that, that I was able to poke a finger at it and make something happen, make all this great stuff come out of it. So that's, that to me is, is the real pleasure of editing, why I edit and, and why I continue to edit. I want to tell you one little example of what I'm talking about. Uh, an author that uh, Bob mentioned, Connie May Fowler, a book called Sugar Cage. And this book we had worked on many stages. We've done the, the rough manuscript and restructured it and then line edited it and done various things. In fact, this book had, had even been copy edited and I was going over some things with the author. In the, in the book, there's a central character who is a kind of tough young kid who has made life miserable for his parents and his father has now died and he's, he's going off to the army. But before he does so, he has to ditch his father's car. So he's just looking around to see if there's anything he needs to salvage. And he um, opens the glove compartment and finds a bobby pin. And the text reads something like, oh, I found this bobby pin. It must have been my mother's from some years ago because she hadn't even wanted to ride in this car the last few years. And then he goes on about his business. And I said, something's bothering me about this because this bobby pin, why, why do we have to assume that it's his mother's? The father was this character who was having a big affair. And uh, I would have thought maybe it's the mistress's bobby pin. I just said, well, I don't want to bring that all up. I want that, that's resolved, that's over. Um, it, I want it to be the mother's. I said, but how, how does the reader know that? So I don't know, let me think about it. And this was all over the telephone, which is actually where I probably do about 75% of my editing is on the telephone. So what, I usually have a, a phone in my hand. I couldn't get one up here. Um, and about 15 minutes later, she called me back. And you could hear that she was kind of, crying, she was all upset, and, and she said, how's this? And what she read to me was this, 
I checked the interior for any personal belongings. Nothing, clean as a whistle except for the glove box, which had one of Mama's rose-colored scarves in it. We used to always give her something rose-colored for her birthday. Her name, in fact, was Rose. Jesus, that was a long time ago. The scarf must have been in there since before Daddy died. For a second, I considered leaving it, but then thought, no, maybe it belongs with me. It was dusty and soft, and there was something so sweet about it I almost wanted to cry, which was stupid since that scarf had been in there all the while I owned the car and had never given it a thought until now. But shit, the army was soon going to own my ass. Why not take a little bit of my mama with me? I put it in the duffel bag. And of course, at this point, I had tears streaming down my eyes, too. And I said, how did you ever think that up? Where does this come from? And what she said to me was, you just ask the right questions. And I decided then that that's what I would be happy to have on my epitaph. Faith Sale is one of the editors who isn't supposed to exist anymore. Um, Despite the fact that her jacket was illustrated by the infamous Chip Kidd, Christina Garcia's first novel, Dreamy and Cuban, was a National Book Award finalist in 1992. She was born in Havana, and she and her family moved to New York when she was two, which created a rift between her father's family, all of whom who fled Cuba, and her mother's, which stayed behind. My mother's family was very pro-Castro, Many of them still are, she said. My father's side is virulently anti-Castro, anti-communist. And she describes her novel as an exploration of the very different ways you can be Cuban. Uh, Christina is a new mother, and she is at Princeton now working on a new novel. Christina Garcia. Thank you. Um, like Faith Sales, I was also a little confused about what we were supposed to be talking about tonight. So I, I just did a just a small personal um, reminiscence of of writing the book and how I got started. I hope that's okay. Um, aside from giving birth to my daughter three months ago, uh, writing Jamie and Cuban was both the most exhilarating and the most difficult thing I'd ever done in my life. But like childbirth, nobody could have prepared me for what was to come. In retrospect, my ignorance was an asset, because if I'd had a clue, I probably would have been much too intimidated to begin. When I started my novel, I had no plot, no outline, no grand vision whatsoever. In fact, I didn't even know I had a novel. I'd been writing bits and pieces of poetry for some months, when in the spring of 1989, I finished a poem about three semi-suicidal Latinas and the futile ways they try to kill themselves. The poem to me seemed to hint at a larger world, a nest of women that I was only just beginning to know. I wanted to find out more about them. I thought again and again about the one who visited botanicas for untried potions, about the spring rains that made her edgy, about the greenery that hurt her eyes. What was her story? What made her so sad? And then an image came to me of her in her old age, 
sitting on a wicker swing, dressed in her best house dress and drop pearl earrings, scanning the Cuban coast for invaders with an old pair of binoculars. That first image led to another, and then another in an almost organic fashion. By the time I had about 80 pages, I realized this was not just the story of her life, but several lives, and that's where my obsession began. I took a five-month leave of absence from my work as a journalist, naively thinking that somehow, miraculously, I'd be able to finish the book and my savings account simultaneously. <laughs> the savings account went a lot faster than the writing. Much to my dismay, I had to return to work. Much to my boss's dismay, I had to return to work. I was getting up earlier and earlier to write and arriving at the office at unconscionable hours. Some days, my mind never arrived at all. As I was drawn deeper into my novel, I found I had less to say to my colleagues. I was living in an imaginary world, and the fact that one of my imaginary characters had pushed her imaginary third husband off a roller coaster during a moment of passion would seem odd to them. <laughs> I stopped answering the telephone and my mail. Whereas I once read five newspapers a day, page by page, I now barely glanced at the headlines. My life as a journalist was slipping away. It would be embarrassing to relay the full extent of my obsession in writing the book. The little black terrier I got for my birthday and had to give away because her demands interfered with my concentration. The earplugs I bought to block out the snoring of the big English bulldog that replaced the little black terrier. <laughs> the wrenched neck I suffered from carrying Webster's third new international everywhere. And I mean everywhere, even to Tokyo on vacation, where I went to meet my mother-in-law's family. The rounds of doctors I consulted for what I believed were my newly arthritic wrists. It turned out the pain was psychosomatic. And in the final days of writing my novel, the white bed sheets from Sears I threw over my computer at night so I could get a few hours sleep. My life in books, it's not much of a life at all, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you. Thank you. Now, even if you have the talent of Christina, Paula Fox. You have a jacket done by the infamous Chip Kidd. Uh, Faith Sale is your editor, and Donald Lamb is very, very hungry uh, on publication day. Uh, you still could use the services of Susan Magrino, one of the best known and most successful uh, public relations and promotion people. She has her own agency now, the Susan Magrino Agency, but for 10 years she was Associate Director of Publicity and Media for the Crown Publishing Group. And she directed and organized aspects of the national, local publicity for such as Dominic Dunn, Martha Stewart, Tama Janowitz, Judith Krantz, and Patty Davis. Susan Magrino. Hi. Um, instead of talking about uh, my life in books tonight, I decided to talk about books in my life. 
Um, I grew up in a family that always valued books above everything. Uh, every Christmas, I have three sisters, and we'd each get a book, and that was always our most prized possession. It beat out Betty Crocker and the bicycle and everything else. Um, I've always loved fiction, and that's that remains one of my favorite things. I love the beach in the summer. It, it gives me four months of weekends uninterrupted, Saturday and Sunday back to back, and the ride on the train out and the train back to, to do nothing but read. Um, books that, that stand out in my memory, um, uh, Eloise at the Plaza. I still want to slide down the banisters. Every time I go in there, I, I'll always remember that book. Um, John O'Hara wrote a short story called Imagine Kissing Pete that I read when I was graduating from high school and I, and I found that to be a parable of, of life that's applied in, in many situations. Um, Raymond Carver's short stories, I, I don't think anybody does it any better than that. Um, Louise Erdrich's Beat Queen and the Mambo Kings play Songs of Love. I watched that book, I watched FSG advertise it, I saw it stacked up in the bookstores. I, I read it, I loved it, I told everybody about it, I watched it get nominated for two or three awards, only to become a runner-up, and I remember when it won the Pulitzer, I, I felt so vindicated, and I thought, well, you really were right about that one. Um, I, I think, it, I, I hate to be partial, but I've got to say Algonquin. Everything that Algonquin has done, I, I've really enjoyed. Ellen Foster, uh, Clover by Dory Sanders, and Walking Across Egypt by Clyde Edgerton. Um, there's, there's one uh, novel that was published about two years ago by Jill McCorkle uh, called Ferris Beach with Algonquin, and it's about, it's a story of, of two girls growing up in South Carolina, Katie and Misty, and um, about a friendship, and I don't know, it reawakened in me this, you know, remembrance of what it was like and, you know, what it was like to be six or eight or ten, I had really forgotten about that. Um, Misty and Katie, Misty's mother, her name is Mo. Um, she's the youngest mother that Katie has ever seen. She wears nail polish, she, she sings Elvis songs, she's a little wild. Katie's mother is reserved, Katie, Katie's mom is always sort of covering her eyes to the realities of life. Um, they become very friendly and uh, Katie goes over there one afternoon and um, and I don't know, I just I want to read a few paragraphs because I, I, I think it was really great and, and this is to me what it was all about. Um, Katie comes over with some homemade cookies that her mother has made and she's bringing them over to, to Misty and her mother Mo, Mrs. Rhodes. Let's eat these cookies you brought. I just can't wait, Mrs. Rhodes grabbed me by the hand and then pulled both of us through the coolness of the carport, past the mannequin and rocks, and into the box-cluttered kitchen where she poured glasses of Coca-Cola and put on an Elvis Presley record. I was not allowed to drink soda on a regular basis, but I didn't say a word. Rather, I sat in complete awe of this woman whose purple wooden earrings swung back and forth as she talked. I envied the silent girl across from me, Misty. On first meeting, I thought her name a cruel joke, as cruel as someone huge named Bitsy or Teeny. What's your name again, hon? Mrs. Rhodes asked. Her hips moved back and forth in rhythm with Heartbreak Hotel. Mary Catherine, but people called me Katie, I said, and then without thinking added, my dad sometimes calls me Kitty. It slipped, this nickname my mother despised. Kitty, she said, and stared at me smiling, while Misty gave me a dirty look. I like that. I like the way it sounds, the same way I like Misty. Right. Misty finally spoke. 
Her voice was nasal and much deeper than I'd expected from someone with such pale skin. I was named for a horse, and you were named for a cat. Her deadpan expression brought Mrs. Rhodes over to her chair. No, honey, she squealed in laughter and threw her arms around Misty's neck. You know the story of how I thought of your name. She turned to me briefly. Misty is named for Themista Rose Allen, a young woman I never knew but just heard about. Sort of a local legend where I'm from. She pressed her cheek against Misty's. You weren't named for the horse, even though I did think that was such a romantic-sounding name. Misty of Chincoteague, only you were Misty of Ferris Beach. Misty just stared down at the vanilla wafers and lady fingers on the paper plate in front of her. Her mouth tightened into a straight line. Johnny Mathis must think it's a romantic name, too. He named a song that. Yeah, 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 and you're named for the Three Stooges, Misty of Ferris Beach said, and paused with a vanilla wafer in hand. Hello, 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 she said, in perfect Three Stooges rhythm, and she was beginning to smile now, as if this was a routine the two of them had played through many times before. And then her mom, hand gently placed on Misty's head, began singing, Look at me, I'm as helpless. Oh, yuck, Misty Rhodes said, and bit into a ladyfinger, leaving a ring of powdered sugar on her lips. These cookies are pretty good, she said. They're almost as good as the store-bought kind. Anyway, thank you. Don't you wish she was out on the road reading from your book? Um, Pen, the first, the P is not silent. The, uh, the first letter stands for poets, which I've always thought were the, the bravest of all literary doers. Uh, we have a poet with us tonight. Uh, since the publication of his first collection, Cartoons, in 1980, he's been considered one of America's finest young poets. Cornelius Eady, his Victims of the latest dance craze won the Lamont Poetry Prize from the Academy of American Poets in 1985, and his most recent volume, The Gathering of My Name, was a Pulitzer nominee. His work has been published in the Kenyan Review and Plowshares, among other journals. Cornelius Eady, who's a native of Buffalo, I'm sorry, that's Rochester, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the Super Bowl already. A native of Rochester, teaches at SUNY Stony Brook, and is director of the Poetry Center there. Cornelius Eady. Well, how, how a sports guy can make that kind of mistake? jeez. Oh, <laughs> yeah, just, just for all the... Be really looking you know, shape for a poet, you know, Cornelius. Yeah, you know, well, you know. <laughs> at least, no, 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 we won't, we won't do it. We won't do this. We won't do this. I feel like I, the personal honor of my hometown is. <laughs> anyway, I didn't know what we were supposed to do either. <laughs> uh, poets will just be direct and tell you, right? <laughs> um, but the more I thought about it, the more because also since I'm a poet, <laughs> my relationship with books and literature is a little different than than novelists. Um, but in the end, I thought I, I settled on a a series of, of uh, thoughts um, about this. It's about eight of them. And it's under the general heading of what comes around goes around. One, 
I received a letter from Susie Mee, a poet who was, who was my rabbi when I joined the New York State Poets in the Schools program after my wife and I moved to New York. The real reason for her call is book business, but during our conversation, she asked me if I had received my copy of the poetry anthology she edited for Scholastic Books a few years back. I tell her I haven't. I've forgotten all about it. And a few days later, I get one in the mail. Reading it brings back to me all the similar anthologies I had read in high school, and it occurs to me that several of the poems are in fact the same ones I read then or have since taught. Here is Frank O'Hara's Autobiographica, William's The Last Words of My English Grandmother, Ed Hoey's Foul Shot. Also, I realize I know or have met or have read with a number of the writers represented here, Sharon Olds, Lucille Clifton, Gary Soda, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, Charles Simic. It isn't until this moment, this precise minute, that it sinks in that I have become exactly what some part of me has started out to become. Two, I have just finished reading in a small college in Pennsylvania and being surrounded by a group of young black male students. They are not poets. They aspire to become screenwriters, directors, they're smart. <laughs> a, few a few minutes earlier, during the question and answer period, a, a white male faculty, faculty member asked me if this wasn't our fault, the fault of black writers for not making it easier for a, a reader outside of the experience to follow along. Shouldn't we make more of an effort if we really wanted to be understood? And I replied with my memory of reading The Wasteland, the first thing in the morning, three days a week at my junior college. I tell him that if I could be compelled to spell, spend time with a text which came from a world I didn't grow up in, why couldn't he? This answer was better than any poem I read to these students. And as I hear their voices brighten with how my answer relates to their studies, I realize it isn't what, it isn't what, uh, that I, it isn't what I said that brought this on, it's simply that I have said something. Three, I'm in my mid-twenties. And I'm hearing Michael Harper read poems from his book, Dear John Dill, Dear Coltrane. Sorry, Dear John Dill Coltrane. I have read and admired this book before, but now, as if for the first time, I hear it. He is reading the poems to a pre-recorded tape of Coltrane's music. And though he must have done this a hundred times before, to me, it is goosebumps, headlines, and possibilities. Four. Tom Ellis and I are having coffee at some greasy spoon in Boston, a few blocks away from the Dark Room Collective, which is a house full of young black writers. Soon, as if it were a Sunday prayer meeting, which I guess in some ways set up for my reading. But first, this moment, after Tom's official taping for their archives, this moment, which is looser, funnier, and more informative for the both of us now that the record button's off. He is not using the words, but I can tell that somehow, in the same strange ways that one stops being identifiably young, I have become a role model. From this point on, I realize my life has a trail. Five. I receive a letter from the then Soviet bloc. Some poet has written to let me know that he loves my work. Please send more. How did he get the book? <laughs> Six. Jane, 
A friend I hadn't seen since the alternative school we both attended broke up is sitting with a group of loud, noisy friends a few tables away from me at an Indian restaurant in Rochester. She's just passing through town. The Grateful Dead is playing in Buffalo the next day. She tells me three things, two of which I'd heard only as rumors. One, yes, she indeed was a cook for Robert Bly. She grew tired of the job. <laughs> two, yes, she was the one who in invented the name for the Cherry Garcia flavor of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> and three, she ran to a group of writers in Nicaragua had somehow gotten a hold of my book and was translating some of the poems to Spanish. How did they get a hold of the book? <laughs> Seven. I am 14 or 15 years old. I am reading the other poems in Howl by Allen Ginsberg at the Rochester Public Library. I read this in his poem, America. When can I go to the supermarket and buy what I want with my good looks? And foolish me, I believe this world is possible. How did the library get a hold of this book? <laughs> Eight, and the last one. I am probably 14 or 15. I am reading Amiri Baraka's then Leroy Jones's preface to a 20-volume suicide note at the Rochester Public Library. Somebody hip is buying the poetry books. I am reading this. Oh God, I must have a belt that glows green in the dark. Where is Captain Midnight? Where is my Captain Midnight Dakota? I can't understand what Superman is saying. There must be a Lone Ranger. I love any poet who admits to reading comic books. All the poems are playful. He's young, he's black, he's male. How does he pull it off? How did the library get a hold of this book? Cornelius Eady of Rochester, thank you very much. Um, our, our, our next bookie is somebody that I probably should not introduce because there's a conflict of interest here. Elizabeth Gordon was my editor at Harper and Row, and I, I can only tell you that she was simply terrific. Um, before I knew her, she started as a library promotion assistant at Farrar Strauss, and by 1973, she was a rising star at Harper's in children's books. Within 10 years, she was vice president and publisher handling Harper, Lippincott, and Kroll, she tripled sales, made me and a lot of other writers feel unjustifiably smart and happy and wanted, had a child, and even got her MBA after four years of night classes at NYU. 1990, she deserted me and went off to Disney. She's in charge of Hyperion Books, Disney Press, and the new self-help series, I'm Goofy, You're Goofy. <laughs> That, that's my joke. <laughs> Mr. Kidd, can you help me with that? Um, Elizabeth Gordon. I was afraid he was going to tell the other goofy joke. You can ask him about it afterwards. 
You told it to me once. It's got a few bad words in it. <laughs> my life in books. It's all my family's fault. They're to blame. I never thought about growing up to be an editor or going to publishing. No, as any good pre-feminist girl, I wanted to be a ballerina, a nurse, an equestrian, um, later a trench-coated foreign correspondent. Um, I ended up in publishing when I realized I hated graduate school and needed something to do where my two English degrees might prove helpful. My mother warned me about useless degrees. She had one in sociology. <laughs> and she suggested Chinese, Japanese, and Far Eastern studies. See, you should always listen to your mother. But my family life was so informed by books and reading, by words, stories, storytelling, that I can see now I was destined for this accidental profession. My sister, by the way, is a librarian. Ending up in children's publishing was, I used to think, an uh, even greater accident, uh, a result of my uh, first two bosses at Farris, Strauss, and Giroux's um, passion, as well as my own interest in art, as well as text. But no, really, my family was to blame. My mother, of course, read to me, or made up stories if we were in the car. My grandmother never tired of telling stories of the old days. One of her favorite stories was about her adored big brother, my great-uncle Aaron. She always wanted him to pay attention to her, to take her out on the town. Uh, she would complain that she had nothing to do. Here, he would say, read the dictionary. There's always something to do if you have a dictionary. She hated that answer when she was young, but she was so proud of it when she told me that story over and over. Aaron had left school in eighth grade to help run the family business, but until he died at age 90, he read prodigiously. I was always sending him books, and invariably, within a week, I would get a letter back uh, giving me his reactions on whatever book I had sent him that time. His family business became very successful, and he spent his retired years starting libraries for schools without them or replacing books which libraries had lost um, to disasters such as floods or fires. As a teenager, I was sure that I was the only child in suburbia whose mother was not always reading when I came home from school, but who was reading non-bestsellers, uh, Willa Cather or Edith Hamilton or even Basil Willey's 17th Century Europe. It was almost as embarrassing as my other grandmother's insistence that I make up poems from the things I saw on the street as we walked down the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Eat only crusts of bread, she said, the outsides of rolls, drink only fresh orange juice, and make up poems. <laughs> this was my city grandma. She was supposed to take me to Saks, for goodness sakes. But it was my grandfather, I think, who really was the one I can blame for getting me here. Mine is a Cornell family, starting with him. And E.B. White, Andy White to him, was his hero. He read all of White aloud to me, from Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little to essays and articles. And he gave me the elements of style, called the Little Book. In my house, it was more important than the Bible. There was an answer there to everything. Only lazy writers use the words, the fact that. Never use a long word when the shorter and stronger one will do. There is an answer there for everything. My grandfather also recited Shakespeare to me. There was a quote for everything and a quote for nothing. How did he remember it all? He died when I was still young, 
And it wasn't until the last few years that I really understood his childhood and his beginnings. I knew he was an orphan and had gotten into Cornell on a scholarship. But I realized in the past few years that today he would have been called homeless, for he didn't have a proper home. He slept at various friends' houses, coming in at night and being fed by uh, caring neighbors. During the day, he was either in school, working odd jobs, or in the library, especially the library, especially in the winter. It was warm. He stayed until closing time, reading, reading, and reading, unconsciously memorizing, making the words his. Books really, literally, solidly changed his life. And I suppose I do what I do because deep inside me, I really believe that the books I edit matter, that the children's books I edit matter most because they can catch a child when catching is still a possibility and offer them not only a glimpse of other lives and other places, but also a glimpse of who they can become. speaker, Samuel G. Friedman, I met for the first time about an hour and a half ago, but he has been my constant companion for the last four or five months. I've been writing about a high school, and I don't think, at least for the rest of this century, maybe longer, anybody will be able to write about high schools or public education or the chemistry between teacher and student without reading small victories, the real world of a teacher, her students, and their high school. It was unfairly a National Book Award finalist in 1990. Of course, it should have won. Sam is a former New York Times staff writer. Uh, he still contributes to that paper. Uh, he writes for the Rolling Stone. He has more awards than I'm going to bother to read to you. But I will urge you to get his new book, which, as we speak, is dropping into Jill Dunbar's bookstore. And other places around the city. It's called Upon This Rock, The Miracles of a Black Church. Sam Friedman. I got my marching orders in a little bit clearer form than some of those who preceded me here. But they didn't offer actually that much more of a clue because I was told to talk about the relationship a writer has with readers, which is a relationship that, as I'll explain later, is rarely direct. And it wasn't until about 6 o'clock yesterday morning when I was in East New York, Brooklyn, about a block or two from where a police officer was going to be shot later in the day, that I realized exactly what I wanted to say. But how I got there and what I found there would be to get a little bit ahead of the story now. And I always felt from the very beginning that writing was a kind of storytelling, that there was really no division between oral history, between oral tradition, and written tradition. And that even now when I teach students uh, at Columbia, where I run a book writing seminar about extended narrative, book-length narrative, I always say, just imagine that you're saying to a room full of people, you all sit down, I'm gonna tell you a story. I'm the only one who knows this story, but I got it down really well, so just relax and listen. 
And in thinking about today, I realized that image came to me in large part from, of all things, having gone to YMCA camp in Northwest New Jersey when I was a kid. And the experiences of at night going down to the lakeside to hear really good ghost stories. And just the way the narrative could transport you, transport you so much that you'd be terrified to walk up the gravel path to your cabin, terrified by whatever night noise you might hear. And those yarns tied in with other yarns. When I was uh, young, for some reason I became very involved with books about science, even though it would always be one of my weakest subjects. And I loved reading books like Microbe Hunters and God's Graves and Scholars. And I was completely transported by such things as the story of the discovery of Troy or Chichen Itza or learning about the cure for anthrax. And I had a paper route at about that same time, and one of the first things I bought with my collection money was a little transistor radio, which I put by my bedside. And it was important to find one that had one of those sleep switches, which at that time was an innovation, begins to date me. Because I would go to sleep every night listening to Gene Shepard's show on WOR, one of the master storytellers ever listening to his tales of home in Indiana, which was his slightly fictionalized version of, of Gary or Hammond, and life in and around the steel mills and in the, uh, in the ethnic neighborhoods among what we would call now the Reagan Democrats, I guess. And I realized in some way then that a great story, a great book, I would say now, can rearrange your molecules. And years later, as I read more seriously as I read with Nitrates what I would write, books like The Death of Artemio Cruz by Carlos Fuentes and Continental Drift by Russell Banks and Rumors of Rain by Andre Brink rearranged my molecules. But only when I started to write my own books did I come to understand that those writers probably never knew what they were doing to my body chemistry. Because the act of writing a book, of course, a nonfiction book, after the research, which is rather social ends, is a solitary work. You're atomized. You are, as I put it, in the tunnel. And in my case, for each of the two books I've written, you're in the tunnel for about a year. And then you finish your writing another year or nine months before the book ever comes out and has any kind of a public life. And, I, and that creates this strange interregnum where the birth has already happened but nobody else seems to know about it. No one's coming to slap the baby on the behind. No one's coming to do that zero to 10 test. No one's coming to see how the limbs move and if there's a, uh, a lusty cry and what they called a strong stream, I think. I always envied playwrights their ability to stand in the back of the theater, provided they'd already gotten a good review in the Times, of course, and see their reaction to their words, to know, to have that instantaneous feedback. Because as a writer of books, you don't have that, or you very rarely do. What you might do is linger around the bookstores a lot, like I do, on the pretense of signing your books so they can't return them to people like Mr. Lamb for credit. <laughs> and hoping that you'll actually see someone come in and ask for your book. Well, that rarely happens, and uh, it keeps you away from writing your new book. So you give up on that. And so eventually some letters reach the publisher who forwards them to you and you write a book about a public high school that you've gone through every chapter of at least 30 times and you get a letter from a retired teacher in Washington State 
telling you how appalling it is that you wrote a book about a teacher and the grammar on page 247 is wrong. <laughs> so you take a little more time away from the new book to write her back a nasty note. I'll get Chip to ghostwrite them from now on. And then another missive comes a day or two later, and it's someone who starts out this wonderful letter about how moved they were by your book, and there's never been a book like that before, and why don't you write your next book about me? And then, and then as you dig a little bit deeper into the envelope, you find their press kits and collected clippings. <clears throat> and so that's what has to sustain you until you find yourself in East New York one morning in the dark, watching dozens, scores, by the end several hundred members of St. Paul Community Baptist Church gathering for a daybreak service to mark the publication of the book that you've written about them. And in all the time I've spent around St. Paul, I've never ceased to be moved and amazed by the sight of this gathering of forms in the morning darkness and by the jolt of adrenaline you get walking into a sanctuary that's rocking with worship when it's still an hour before dawn outside. And what happened yesterday was far more than a culmination or far more than a terrific book party, although I think it was both of those. It was for me the sign, the proof of the human connection that a writer hopes to make with readers because one of the things that happened at six in the morning was kind of ritualized turning over of the words to those they had been written about. And as people in that church reached across the abyss of race and the abyss of religion, in particular abyss these days, to entrust me with parts of their lives, to entrust me with truths of their lives that weren't always pretty truths. I felt as if I was being handed sacred cargo and that I had to carry it delicately to its destination and that if it cracked along the way, I'd have a lot of explaining to do. And yesterday was the day it did arrive. And during that service, a number of sections of the book, those which were about different members of the congregation, the recovered drug addict who now leads a support group, the grandmother who's raised 30 grandchildren who aren't her own from around the neighborhood, the one white member, the woman whose husband was shot by an off-duty cop and found a redemptive friendship with her ex, her late husband's sister, the mentally retarded young man striving to live on his own, for the first time at the age of 24. And those portions of those chapters were read aloud, not by me, but by people in the congregation. And that was where, again, that great connection was made because it was that rare chance, that rarest chance for an author to see the words connect with a reader, to hear maybe someone gasp, to hear someone laugh, to hear someone cry, to hear people read your words better than you read them. And just as people in theater strive to break through what I think Grotowski called the fourth wall, I guess every writer is trying to break through both of the covers and somehow to reach out and know that you've made a human connection with the people who are reading your work and that maybe in that touch you've rearranged one or two molecules of theirs.
You may have had the only book that was baptized this year. <laughs> well, we're going to move from the, the sacred to the profane now, to the bookstore. None of us are going to get a chance to read Sam's book unless a Donald Lamb or Jill Dunbar, hungry, thrusts it into our hands. How does somebody become a bookseller? Well, Jill Dunbar, who's going to speak next, grew up on the western coast of Florida, reading voraciously, she said, although she never thought about books as a career. She studied at Sweetbriar College, the Sorbonne, and Boston University. In New York City, she worked for Betty Parsons in her 57th Street Gallery and wrote on arts for the 57th Street Review, Woman Arts, Ms., and The Villager. In 1978, Jill and two friends created Three Lives and Company, booksellers in Greenwich Village. She remains a managing partner of the store, which Newsday last year named one of the city's 10 best bookstores, Jill Dunbar. When Sandy called me to speak to this, um, to this group or at this moment, I started thinking a lot about books, books in my life, my life in books, and it was a great revelation as some, I think all of us are very pleased to have done so, to think back, as we all probably should do in National Book Week. We do it quite a lot. Books were a sanctuary for me when I was a kid, and the one great passionate collection I have as an adult is my book collection. But I, I didn't know that these things were going to lead me to being a bookseller. Uh, it, I feel that I might be lucky to have some of the experiences that you wish for, which are being that last link on the chain. Um, when people come into our shop, which is about half fiction, they'll say, what do you suggest? And we all have our favorites, but I can walk around my shop and think, well, have you read Jane Smiley? And if the answer is no, I say, you lucky dog. And, or um, have you read Lives of Silence or The Assault by Harry Mulish or a great, one of the great Edith Wharton novels? And it's a thrill. Um, if you want to just be told a story by someone who's a master, take a Somerset Mom novella. Um, since owning the store, reading has not is no longer for me an individual experience. It's um, it's something that I know when I read a great book, I can think of people who will love it, or I can also know that hundreds of people are going to have. I'm going to pass that on to hundreds of people, and they're going to come back to me with some reaction, their own individual reaction, and it's quite extraordinary because every reaction will be different. And I think it all comes back to what we're all celebrating, and it's these little tiny cubes with these extraordinary lives inside. So I join you all in celebrating them today. Thanks. I met our last speaker. He was Joe Spieler. Now he's F. Joseph Spieler. At the Times, 20 years ago, I had no idea of this man's chutzpah. Let me read uh, his, how he got his job. He speaks of himself in the third person. His boss had given him a termination date, and attempts to find a job as a book editor were unavailing. 
a friend pointed out how easy it was to become an agent. You needed to be able to read, well, maybe. You needed to be able to read, talk on the phone, multiply by either 10 or 15 percent. There were no exams, no licensing procedures. He met his first client in a men's room. He says this. They were standing side by side. Um, I think things have gotten better for F. Joseph Spieler. I wasn't intending to, but since uh, Robert brings up the F, uh, I just want to explain that the F stands for Francis, which uh, was a very important name for my mother to give to me in, the, in my uh, adolescence. I forswore it. And if I had to do it over again, I'd, um, I'd be known to the world as Francis, but it's too late. So I sort of tacked on the first initial when I did my first stationery, my first letterhead. Um, I, too, didn't know what I was supposed to do when I was contacted about uh, this event. But I'm not sure that even if I had, that it would have made any difference. So I, I'd like to um, tell two publishing stories uh, that I was, am a part of. Um, neither has an ending yet. So. It's a reason to uh, look forward to tomorrow. When I first started about 10 years ago uh, to be an agent, um, I was contacted by a uh, high school teacher, uh, an English high school teacher in California, who actually um, had left teaching for a while to become a, um, a monk, a lame monk in a Chinese Buddhist monastery in Northern California. OK, that's cool. And he wanted, he said, he had begun, he said, to write a series of stories um, on a uh, mythical farmer around the turn of the century who lived near a mythical river called the Cannonball River. And um, he wanted this, he was going to endow this farmer with enormous strength. And this farmer was going to meet some wonderful characters and um, through these meetings educate himself about proper life. Um, there were going to be five stories, and um, in them he would meet a chatterbox grain spirit whose name was Wheatberry, Theodore, who was a sarcastic tree spirit. There was to be a beautiful river spirit who um, was very concerned with the protection of animals, and others, all uh, with lessons to teach about caring for wildlife, preserving natural beauty, and living in harmony uh, with oneself, with one's neighbors, and with the environment. That was 10 years ago. And every six months or a year, he would send me a half a story or a story. And then we would have these long sessions on the phone. We would talk about individual sentences, about words. Um, I got into my favorite thing, which is when do you use that and when do you use which. And we got into. It was, I really, I believe to the degree that anyone can enter the mind of a story that's being written, I sort of got there. And it was very wonderful for me because uh, in these stories I, um, I received the opportunity to be a child again and to uh, permit myself to just enter this fantastical world. Eventually he finished the stories and um, I showed them to several publishers. In fact, found several eager publishers, and we had sort of a mini auction, which kind of amazed me. Uh, and they were sold uh, to Sierra Club Books. 
Um, we found, they found, Sierra Club Books, a wonderful illustrator who unfortunately then became ill, and so we delayed, they delayed the book by for six months and then a year. And then the illustrations which were to have been throughout the book were just limited to a kind of a margin that ran along the bottom of each page. And uh, recently, the book was published. And I, I loved it and love it now as much as I did when I first heard about it. And uh, we got the first of uh, several reviews. And uh, they were pretty terrible. One review said of uh, the author, the author seldom lectures, but the subdued humor, the lack of tension, and a hero who's anything but a typical larger-than-life tall-tale figure all reduce the effectiveness of his message. About a week later, we got the second review. And these reviews are important because the book was being aimed at um, a library market and a market of uh, young people. And the booklist and ALA and several others have, I believe, uh, a, f a far greater uh, impact uh, than um, books for, than reviews on, on adult uh, trade fiction. The second review says, well, there is so much going on that very little succeeds. The stories just aren't exaggerated or dry enough to be funny. And the ecological message is forced. Conversations are at times hard to follow, although some of the river descriptions are quite beautiful. Um, Teachers and libraries needing something with a Save the Earth theme will do better with Arnowski's Crinker Loot series, whatever that was. Um, that was pretty painful, and um, if it was painful for me, I can only kind of imagine how painful it was for the author. Um, and we wait for further reviews, we wait for sales. In fact, we just did get a review three or four days ago that was considerably more favorable, but we don't know. So here is something that someone spent about a decade working on, on which a publisher spent their resources and their time, and we'll see. My second story. About eight years ago, seven years ago, I got a call from someone in Washington who wanted to know, had I ever heard the name Leo Zillard? Well, in fact, I had, because I knew some Hungarians, and I knew that Leo Zillard was this rather incredible Hungarian scientist who nobody else knew about. He said that he wanted to write the first biography of Leo Zillard. Would I be interested in representing him? I didn't have many clients, so I said, of course I'd be interested in representing him. <laughs> so he sent me some sample notes, and we eventually, going back and forth, cobbled together a pretty good outline about Leo Szilard, the scientist whom nobody knew. And I sent it around, and I sent it around, and I sent it around. And eventually, an editor at Simon & Schuster said, I'm going to offer you whatever it was, $20,000, $25,000, because I think this is a really terrific book on a very important subject, even though nobody knows who Leo Szilard is. Great, I said. How wonderful. I called the author, and um, we congratulated each other on the phone. And the next day, the editor called back and said, listen, I'm terribly sorry, but so-and-so, and the so-and-so was um, the sort of the field marshal for the uh, publisher at the time, said, I'm not going to let you publish a book on someone whose name not only have I never heard of, but I can't even pronounce. So we took the proposal back, and we sent it around, and we sent it around. And finally, we found an editor. Um, 
at Scribner's who said, yeah, I know about Leo Szilard, let's do it. So we actually did it and got a contract. And the author worked and he worked and he worked and he worked and he sent me a manuscript and he said, I think this needs a little work before I send it to the um, editor. Maybe we should do some stuff. And I said, okay. And we worked and we worked. And he went through two, three, four, maybe five drafts. And then we said, I said, because I was getting there were other things to do. I said, let's show it to Robert Stewart, your editor, and see what he says. And Robert went through one or two additional drafts, and then Robert got caught up with other things, and the book somehow, it, uh, it just stayed there, manuscript in a box. And one of the things that uh, we had been looking forward to was a PBS series that um, a PBS series on, on the making of the atomic bomb. This seemed to be, if not a natural tie-in, certainly a book uh, to publish at that time because the series um, treated uh, Leo Szilard in a, uh, in a very respectful, and they, they went to great lengths to talk about Szilard's efforts. But things got delayed and the book didn't come out. It didn't come out and one thing led to another and we were all sort of when is this going to happen? And the publisher at some point said, well, maybe we ought to cancel a contract because, you know, we don't have the revisions and this is now, you know, a two-year contract has turned into seven years. <laughs> and so one final push and the book was finished and it was, went into galleys and the actual book went to the bindery and it came out from the bindery and then nothing. But really nothing. Um, then last uh, Thursday, or last Friday, I got a call from uh, Scribner's that said, uh, we're going to fax you something, Just look out for it. So I run to the fax machine, and, and fax machine. out comes these pages. And um, what it is, is a, um, it's next Sunday's New York Times Sunday Book Review. It's the lead review on the front page with this wonderful illustration on a book. on a book which the experience of life would have told you, relax, you know, if it happens, but it's never going to happen big. And of course, publishers being, you know, brilliant and prescient and always um, in touch with the latest thing, they had only, you know, printed 5,000 copies. Uh, and so they were frantic trying to get uh, the printer to go uh, to do a, whatever, a quick weekend run. So it looks promising, but we don't know. Who knows, who knows what will happen next? Um, the moral of the story is that there is no moral. Um, but if I may, Paula Fox mentioned um, um, Faulkner, and, and in The Sound of the Fury, I think all of us in publishing, especially, especially as we head to um, a world in which book literacy is, we don't know. We don't know how important it's going to be. But uh, like Dilsey in The Sound of the Fury, all of us, writers, of course, first, and editors and agents, uh, we need to endure. We must. That's it. Francis J. Spieler, thank you very much for that inspiring story to send us at. Uh, we want to thank our bookies. We also would like to thank two people who made this evening possible. Pamela Pierce of Penn. And Roberta, and Roberta Plutzik of the Association of American Publishers. Now, 
On your way out. The poster. Uh, but don't get too excited about it because Chip Kidd and I are working on next year's poster. <laughs> it's take a book to bed. <laughs> You'll never sleep alone. You'll never wake up with a jerk. <laughs> Thank you very much and good night. He did a great job. He did. He did a great job. Um, see you later. Yeah. We really appreciate it.